whether it stays the same or it increases by 10 times, the planet can sustain that level of, of energy growth and energy production. I think that's where a lot of people get confused and, and concerned and scared, thinking that, okay, if human population increases 10x, if human energy consumption increases 10x or 100x, then we're going to you know, melt the planet or we're going to run out of resources. But it's just, it's not even uh, close to being true. What's happening in places like California, the utilities in California have a wholesale cost for power, producing power, that might be three or four cents a kilowatt hour, but for layers of bureaucracy, and, and mismanaged infrastructure, the retail price to the end consumer ends up being 30 to 40 cents per kilowatt hour. So 10 times of that the actual wholesale cost of production. So if you're a new Bitcoin data center or a new power generation asset, you're trying to interconnect and sell power in, into the grid, the companies or the, the entities that control those monopoly transmission lines are by far the companies that add the most time and cost to your interconnection process. They are the gatekeepers and they add you know, a year, two years or more to the process of building out new load or new, new uh, generation. And that's just in ERCOT where the market's pretty good and pretty business friendly. This podcast is entertainment, not financial tax or legal advice. Views expressed represent statements of the speaker in their individual capacity, do not represent the views of Unchained, and should not be considered investment advice. Speakers often have personal, family, or business connections to Unchained, which may include direct financial benefits. Please see our disclosure at unchained.com slash podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bitcoin Frontier podcast. This week we have on Andrew Myers. Andrew, welcome. Hey Joe, thanks for having me. Of course, glad to have you. You recently published Permissionless Power Markets, which is an essay that you wrote. Can you give us a high level overview of that essay? Yeah, uh, so I think anyone, anyone in your audience uh, you know, they're gonna be somewhat familiar with Bitcoin and the problem that Bitcoin solves uh, in the monetary system, where the monetary system is very regulated, you know, have a lot of large in institutions uh, like banks and, and the bank regulators that make it very uh, complex and, and challenging to do business in that in that arena. And Bitcoin really, you know, decentralizes that and, and removes a lot of that friction. Uh, it's equally as true in the energy industry. So it's one of the most regulated industries in the world. Uh, there are a lot of uh, sort of like government sanctioned monopolies that that run the thing. Um, and, uh, I think the opportunity ahead is to continue to deregulate and, and decentralize that market. Uh, so I'm happy to kind of dig into some of the, the key ideas, uh, in that essay, if that, if that works. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, what are some of the key ideas within that thesis? Yep. Um, so one of them is just like the fundamental idea of markets. So markets are there to find the intersection of supply and demand for whatever good or service is being sold in that market. Um, electric power markets are no different. Um, they're, they're working to find that intersection of supply and demand. However, they basically have to do that in real time in perfect balance in order to keep the grid operating. So I think it's very unique to power markets in that, in that way. Um, but there's a few key challenges that, that make that harder to do than it needs to be. So, um, one of the biggest ones I think is, is the lack of demand side elasticity. So what that means is you've had, you know, large regulated monopolies for the last hundred years, uh, in the energy industry that, uh, they basically have been fixing the prices, meaning they offer one price to the end user. And so the end user has not really had an incentive, uh, or the means to actually be price responsive. Um, so demand is changing all the time. Uh, 
or sorry, supply is changing all the time. Demand is, is also changing all the time, but um, they're not actually seeing the real price. So um, that's somewhere, and I'll just even cut to the solution of that. So like Bitcoin mining, for example, um, is already coming in and providing uh, demand response in these markets. So they're already, they're a very price responsive uh, energy consumer. And they're, they're really going for markets where they can, you know, leverage that flexibility to provide that benefit to the grid in, in exchange for lower costs. And that's happening across the board too. You're starting to see more even residential and commercial uh, demand response programs that are, that are helping to fix that demand side issue. And it's also going to take more, more deregulation of the market to, to ultimately enable that. Um, the second challenge that I see and point out in the essay is the fact that, you know, you have this commodity, which is electric power that's moving at the speed of light, but then the value transfer, the money to actually pay for that commodity is lagging by days, weeks, or months uh, through tra traditional uh, banking rails. So, um, you know, if, if you're trying to keep supply and demand in, in perfect balance at all times, and you're delivering that commodity in real time, but you're not sure when you're going to get paid or if you're going to get paid, that creates distrust in the system. And so it starts to create the question if energy prices go really high and you're, you're an energy seller, um, but you don't necessarily know if you're going to get paid, all this credit risk and starts to build up between you and your counterparty. Um, and there's, there's a time value to that money too. So if you're not getting paid for days or months after, then there's, um, you know, opportunity costs that you're missing out on. Uh, and then also just inflation over time is, is eroding any remaining value in that money. Um, and then the, the third key challenge I think is more around, um, you know, operating in a society with sound money versus a society with unsound money, like we currently live in. And I think you just, it leads to misallocation of resources, investment in, um, or lack of investment in the energy infrastructure that we need, uh, to actually maintain a, a robust, resilient power grid. Um, so I see Bitcoin as a solution there, um, ultimately kind of bringing, bringing value, bringing money. Uh, and decision-making power back into the hands of uh, entrepreneurs and innovators and investors um, who, who can, you know, kind of build out that grid of the future. Yeah, I really love that third point. Um, you had an interesting quote that was in your your essay, and it says, we will see a growing class of entrepreneurs, investors, and everyday people eager, eager to produce and consume more energy to make their dreams a reality. That was a great quote. And so like kind of diving into that specifically, do you think like entrepreneurship or running a business could even could actually be easier under a Bitcoin standard or running a small business? Like because you're not competing with governments and large corporations that have, you know, endless cheap money financing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, a good example of that would be what's happened in the power generation side of things just in the last 15, 20 years. Um, there's been there have been some regulations that created, uh, for example, tax incentives for renewable energy. And I don't think that I don't, I'm positive that the, the, the growth of renewable energy has not been because of the tax incentives, but it's made it such that you have to go through the entities who can capitalize on the tax incentives in order to finance a project in a way that is competitive with the rest of the market. So if everyone else is, is leveraging the tax incentives, uh, and then getting debt through for basically two major banks who can capitalize the tax incentives and get cheap debt to finance the projects. If you're not doing that, if you're not playing that game, you're at a significant disadvantage. Um, so I think when we start to move, uh, you know, away from sort of the distortion that those tax incentives cause 
towards more of a, um, you know, self-sovereign type of economy and you have money and value in the hands of people with that sort of sovereign mindset, uh, who are using Bitcoin, that's going to start to shift the wealth and, uh, and, you know, into the hands of, for example, large Bitcoin mining companies that are holding thousands of Bitcoin today. And as the value of that Bitcoin grows, um, they will be in the best position to actually invest in new energy infrastructure. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. What's the current state of Bitcoin adoption within the energy industry in particular today? Like how, how has that, you know, progressed over the last, you know, few years? And then how do you see the energy industry getting into Bitcoin mining over the coming decades? Yeah. I mean, just even taking a step all the way back to the beginning of, of Bitcoin. So 15 years ago, um, you know, mining is happening at the, very much at the hobbyist scale on, on CPUs that scales up to FPGAs and, um, uh, and GPUs, and then ultimately scales up to ASICs around seven, eight years ago. And so it, that was kind of the start of the industrial scale of mining where, you know, Bitcoin mining companies, Bitcoin data centers are looking for megawatts of power instead of just kilowatts of power. And I think at that time there was, you know, there were certainly opportunities, maybe not too many questions were being asked by the utilities or the energy companies. They were just saying, yeah, I mean, buy a few megawatts of power and, and that'll work. But then there was a little bit of pushback there. Um, when, when those companies were looking to scale and you had some, you know, utilities and municipalities that, um, started to ask more questions and maybe even stop serving that type of load, or there might've been local regulations that started to create issues. But then in the last, I think, you know, four or five years, um, the, the industry didn't go away. The demand for power continued to increase even more. And what we've, what we've seen there is, you know, from the perspective of Satoshi Energy, we work very closely with uh, the owners of large generation assets and help them sell power uh, to Bitcoin data centers. And it was a big education process. It was a big uh, process. You know, a lot of work went into kind of figuring out which markets make sense, what sort of power contract structures make sense, um, what locations make sense for Bitcoin mining, and helping to educate those energy companies on how to best sell power to those to those companies. Um, the biggest question at that time was always around the creditworthiness of the of the power consumer being being the Bitcoin data center, and so there's there's numerous ways to approach that, numerous ways that we help to educate them and, and kind of solve for that that challenge to make sure that they're always made whole, they're always going to get paid for the power that they're delivering to to Bitcoin data centers. And I think that added a lot of comfort. And then you uh, in that time frame, there's also been a couple of bull markets uh, with regard to the Bitcoin exchange rate. And it's been interesting to see during the bull markets, the energy companies have started to, to dig deeper into, okay, maybe I should be in, investing in this, in this piece of infrastructure into this Bitcoin data center. In this frontier moment, Andrew is talking about large energy companies entering the Bitcoin mining sector. Let's recap how three well-known energy companies have been participating in the Bitcoin mining industry over the last few years. One, ExxonMobil. They've been working with a Bitcoin mining company, Crusoe, in North Dakota to turn wasted gas into energy for mining Bitcoin. This began as a pilot project back in January of 2021. Last reported, Exxon was thinking about recreating the pilot project in Alaska and four other countries, including Nigeria, Argentina, Guyana, and Germany. Two, Marathon Oil. They're based in Houston and also power co-located Bitcoin mining operations. On their website, it states that they use gas that would otherwise be flared 
due to the lack of a gas connection or gas takeaway capacity constraints. To effectively generate the power for co-located computing and data centers used for Bitcoin mining. Three, ConocoPhillips. They also have publicly stated that they are selling extra flare gas to Bitcoin miners in North Dakota, but they have not disclosed which Bitcoin miner and how much gas they are actually selling. All three of these companies have partnered with Bitcoin miners in various ways, but it still publicly is an incredibly small part of their business. But as Bitcoin continues to grow, it appears likely that all three companies will focus more resources on Bitcoin mining. And now back to Andrew. And our advice during those times has actually been, well, you're actually better off kind of, you know, holding off on the investment until, you know, the, the Bitcoin ASIC price comes down and then the CapEx is a little bit more reasonable than what it is today. Uh, but for whatever reason, even these, you know, very intelligent institutional investors uh, are buying high and selling high rather than buying low and selling high. Um, so that said, they continue to, to want to sell power to these data centers. Uh, they're getting much more comfortable with that. I think they've taken the stance, um, especially with the Bitcoin spot ETF approval earlier this year. Um, there seems to have really been a, a shift in perspective where it's not like, okay, may, maybe this industry is going to go away to where now they think, okay, this industry is here to stay and how do we figure out how to best serve it? So we've seen um, a lot more comfort around selling power to Bitcoin data centers and an increasing amount of investment from some of these large energy companies uh, actually directly into the Bitcoin data centers, maybe as a partial equity investment in a project or even a larger investment into Bitcoin, uh, you know, Bitcoin mining uh, as a whole. And even a couple of large energy companies, um, at least privately, privately at this point, are, are holding Bitcoin on the balance sheet. They just haven't um, made it public yet. Very interesting. Yeah, you touched on the idea that a lot of these energy producers are some, or at least historically have been somewhat concerned about the credit worthiness of Bitcoin miners. What's been like the concern there? Is it just that Bitcoin is so new or is it also like just that Bitcoin is super volatile that you never know if Bitcoin falls 50%, this entity miner might just go out of business? Yeah, it's a little bit of both, um, but it ultimately comes down to them. And this depends on the type of power contract. So there's maybe two flavors of this. One would be what we call an index contract, which is the, the data center is going to be purchasing or the Bitcoin data center is going to be purchasing power effectively in real time at a real time price. And so that's a relatively low risk for the seller of energy, um, as long as um, they have the right sort of billing cycle. So it basically creates accounts receivable risk. Accounts receivable is an asset. It's good to have that. Um, but if accounts receivable both builds up over the course of a month and then that data center goes bankrupt, then that energy company is on the book for a few million dollars worth of energy. We're talking about a hundred megawatt data center or, or greater. Um, the, so the, the way to solve for that one is just more frequent billing. Actually, it's been solved in two ways. Prepayments for the energy, which is not favorable to the data center. That actually um, adds a huge cost of capital to the data center for having to make that prepayment. So the way to kind of fix that for both sides is actually to do more frequent uh, settlements, which Bitcoin solves for that in a, in a really fundamental way. Um, the second risk would be more around uh, a fixed price power contract or a, a hedged power contract. So uh, if the energy supplier or if the energy consumer, the Bitcoin data center wants a fixed price for that energy, they want to hedge over a long enough period of time um, to keep that, that price fixed. 
um, there's a mark to market risk that needs to be accounted for by the seller. So they have to go out and buy that power uh, at a somewhat lower price and to, to then lock in the price to the energy buyer. So that's a whole different set of collateral that they have to account for um, and, and find a way to, to collateralize or, or de-risk. So that's been a big challenge. Um, also for Bitcoin mining companies, that's just a, a huge amount of USD capital that they could otherwise be using to, to build out new data centers that I think has prevented those, those types of hedge agreements um, and actually kind of cornered the market more towards the index contracts. Um, so yeah, hopefully that, that kind of summarizes the, the issue for you. Yeah, definitely. You talked about uh, having like a 100 megawatt data center or Bitcoin mining facility. And there's even larger ones, obviously like 500 and I think maybe even a thousand megawatt at this point. Do you think that that is like sustainable or is that also like a symptom of what you were like mentioning earlier of like cheap money financing, super large scale pro projects that are, that may not be the best way to go about Bitcoin mining? Or do you think that like the industry is going to grow so much that that's still probably a good idea to be building these, these types of projects? Um, I really think that, well, I mean, number one, to build a profitable Bitcoin mining operation, you have to do it uh, with, with your CapEx and your OpEx in mind. And so there, there are economies of scale uh, to this investment. So the bigger you can build the data center, um, the lower per unit cost you're going to end up paying for the Bitcoin ASICs that are going to be used in the data center. Um, the lower per megawatt cost of, of like your data center facility build out and your, your interconnection is going to be. Um, so absolutely, this, the scale is helpful and the scale matters. Um, and then also at that scale, uh, it's hard to get low cost power when you, in, unless you're operating at a, at a big scale, at utility scale, as it's called. Uh, I also have the perspective, and maybe we'll get into some of this a little bit, which like on a, on a Bitcoin standard, I tend to think that, you know, human innovation, human ingenuity is, is unlocked relative to where it's at today. And whatever amount of energy we're consuming today, call it hundred megawatts for a, for a single data center. Um, that should look like a small amount of energy a decade or two decades from now. Yeah. I definitely wanted to kind of dive deeper into that idea because I, I tend to agree on a, especially on a long time horizon humanity is going to get more productive, more efficient, more innovative. I, can you like dive deeper into that concept of like, why might the transition to a Bitcoin backed energy market make it, you know, make society produce more energy or develop new energy technologies? Um, yeah. And it's not just, it's not just Bitcoin. It's just how, how humanity operates. Um, energy, as many people have said, and many people are aware of at this point, especially through the lines of Bitcoin, uh, you know, energy is just fundamental to, to the way that we live and the way that we survive and, and thrive as a species. Um, I think there are different uh, technological tailwinds that are also pushing us towards, towards more energy consumption. So, you know, there's Bitcoin mining is, is one thing. It's, it's more so using waste energy than, than actually creating the need for, for new energy production. But you have, you know, for example, AI computation and the way that, you know, increases human productivity and, and, and um, the amount of energy that we're consuming to do that. Uh, and you also have, you know, whether it's high-tech manufacturing um, or if you think about something like water use, there's like, there's a certain amount of fresh water on the planet, but we also have a ton of salt water that, for example, can be desalinated and, and used for various applications, whether it's, you know, terraforming the desert or even just like serving a large city population um, that might have water shortages. And desalinization is an energy intensive process as well. So 
um, yeah, I think as, as more people, you know, kind of start to adopt Bitcoin, start to actually appreciate wealth, um, through Bitcoin, then they'll be thinking about things to do with their money, things to do with their time. And th those things all take energy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I've, I've seen the chart of like historical energy production, either in the world or in the U S and it's like exponential parabolic type, uh, trends. Like, what do you think it looks like over the next few decades? Does the, that trend of more energy production accelerate? Does it continue at the same pace? How do you think about the speed of the way that this will go about happening? The Unchained IRA is continuing to break new records. With a Roth Bitcoin IRA, you don't pay capital gains on the appreciation of Bitcoin. Unchained offers a solution. They make it simple for you to set up a Bitcoin IRA while keeping control of your Bitcoin keys. Use code FRONTIER for $100 off and schedule your consultation today at unchained.com slash IRA. Now back to the show. It's, yeah, I mean, predicting the future is not easy. Um, <laughs> never, never easy. Uh, I think the, the most important perspective here is that whether it stays the same or it increases by 10 times, um, the planet can sustain that level of, of energy growth and energy production. I think that's where a lot of people get um, confused and, and concerned and scared, thinking that, okay, if human population increases 10x, if human energy consumption increases 10x or 100x, then we're going to you know, melt the planet or we're going to run out of resources. But it's just, it's not even uh, close to being true. Um, there's plenty of land uh, and available resources and, and uh, raw materials to continue, you know, building out our solar production, wind production, nuclear production, uh, gas production to some extent, um, and other fossil fuels to some extent, um, to where it's like, we don't, we don't necessarily have to worry. We don't have to be cautious of that. I think it's more about, you know, how do we find ways to remove the guardrails, to remove the regulations, um, and to help people see that, you know, they can make an impact in the economy. They can actually go out there and create new things. Um, and, and grow the economy or grow their own um, sort of in, impact in the world and then just see how it plays out from there. But without the concern that we're going to run out of energy, I think that's that's the limiting factor. I definitely agree there. Do you have a view on like tr as we transition to this Bitcoin powered energy grid, do you have a view on how it will affect like countries or geopolitics or politics in general? I I think to some extent, Bitcoin, the protocol, Bitcoin, the ethos is enlightening people to the fact that maybe we don't need governments to the extent that they exist or at all. Um, in terms of Bitcoin mining and, and Bitcoin adoption and how those two will, will play off of each other, I think we're, we're actually seeing more Bitcoin adoption, Bitcoin mining adoption in the places that are already business friendly already focused on on free markets and capitalism uh, and self-sovereignty. Uh, and then you're also seeing some places where there's new uh, political tailwinds that are also speaking to that and, and trying to make reforms in that direction. And for them, Bitcoin is a tool to do that. So El Salvador is a great example of that. Uh, I think there's some, some positive signs uh, in Argentina, obviously, um, and then other, other state-level adoption of Bitcoin where, you know, they're trying to deregulate um, the government in general, remove some of the, a lot of the bureaucracy in those places, 
and Bitcoin is just a tool to enable that. Um, so it's kind of happening from both directions. You know, the you know the Bitcoin ethos I think is 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 spreading, and and that's good. And we want to see that continue to spread and hopefully you know reach sort of an inflection point where it's spreading exponentially uh, through this next bull cycle. Um, but also you have sort of the top down approach where you know you have strong leaders coming in and saying, okay, we've you know been trying socialism for so long, it's not working. Um, Bitcoin is a tool for us to move towards this more like market oriented future. Yeah, I think like in the grand scheme of things, Bitcoin, like over the last, you know, centuries of, you know, monetary history, Bitcoin adoption is happening pretty fast. For countries like El Salvador or other business friendly jurisdictions, if this trend continues and adoption happens relatively fast, do you think a lot of the world's wealth will end up accruing to jurisdictions that are business friendly? And like if it happens over a span of, you know, a couple of decades or so, does that have like major impl implications? Like, are there major disruptions because of that? How do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's always been the case. Um, you've had different points throughout history where different parts of the world were more business friendly. You had sort of commingling of, of different cultures, uh, different types of technologies from all around the world going into one place. I mean, a good example is Silicon Valley uh, through the, the 60s and 70s and even into the 2000s. Um, it was a business-friendly environment. Uh, people had the ethos of, you know, going out and innovating and um, building businesses and all of that. Um, I think, unfortunately, it's taken a turn where, obviously, California has become uh, a more heavily regulated, uh, you know, economy, and that's actually pushed people out into other parts of the world. So it's a it's a very clear example that's even happened in our lifetimes. Um, so it, yeah, it, it does make sense that as certain economies open up from a regulatory perspective and embrace Bitcoin as one of those tools to, to enable that, that you're going to see people flood to those markets. Um, places like Texas continue to grow, um, Nashville from a Bitcoin perspective and just a relatively friendly business environment from a tax and regulatory standpoint is, is growing. Uh, Florida, Miami is, is becoming a tech hub for the same reason. Um, there are some businesses moving to El Salvador um, I think it's a little bit too early to see if Argentina is going to see the benefits of that, but there's a, certainly a good chance of it. Yeah, it also seems like, at least my experience with Bitcoin adoption is everyone, you know, tends to get into Bitcoin at the same time, like when the price is going up, like that, I'd say like that's the key benefit of Bitcoin, the number go up technology. And so maybe all of those jurisdictions will like double down or triple down next bull cycle when the price is actually like going up or surpassing all-time highs. Do you agree with that? Disagree with that? I think most people get in when when it's a bull market, for sure. So we'll, yeah, we'll see how that plays out in the next 12, 24 months. For sure. This is another topic that you touched on a little bit earlier, but I think it's worth diving into a little bit. How do you see like patterns of energy consumption? How will that change as we transition to this like Bitcoin market? Right, like Right now, you said like the demand for energy is relatively volatile, but in the future, when Bitcoin miners are potentially a large part of the energy consumption, would would they like them curtailing make the consumption of energy more steady over time? Would energy prices be more stable? Would they be would they be less stable and more volatile? How do you think about that? Um, there's probably a few things impacting this right now. So, you know, we're we're going from a very centralized uh, monopoly utility uh, type of, of way of operating power grids 
largely using uh, more dispatchable generation like like coal and natural gas and, and nuclear and hydro um, to a market where in the last 20 years, there's been a lot more deregulation of the market so that buyers and sellers can actually interact in that market um, rather than having to, to only function through this centralized utility. And at the same time, you're seeing more volatility on the supply side with continued build out of re renewable energy, solar and wind power. Um, the impact that Bitcoin is having here is that it's both a, a supply response asset and a demand response asset. So it's, you know, you're operating the data center, you can actually co-locate those data centers with renewable energy so that if there's a surplus of renewable energy at a given time of day when the sun is shining and all of your solar farms are producing a lot of energy, then the, the Bitcoin data center can absorb that power and reduce volatility on that supply side. Uh, and then on the demand side, when prices are high, demand is high, there's demand for that power or power of any, any type of uh, you know, generation asset, then the data center is able to shut off and minimize volatility on the demand side. I think where we need to continue to see um, additional improvement in market design and, and how markets operate is going to be you know, not just Bitcoin data centers, but other industrial customers, commercial customers, and residential customers also starting to see a real-time price signal uh, and operate more responsibly and, and minimize volatility again on the demand side. So absolutely, Bitcoin is uh, you know, a, a key part of, of minimizing volatility in the power markets. Um, in terms of you know, where price goes for power, I think that the expectation generally is that you know, as society moves back towards sound money, um, we should see the cost of everything go down. So the real cost of power actually has decreased even in the last 50 to 100 years. Um, but the nominal cost with, with inflation has gone up. Um, so, you know, supply and demand also matters in terms of price, but innovation continues to drive the price down as well. So I, I, I tend to think that we'll see power prices and volatility decrease over a long time horizon. Yeah, I agree with that. When it comes to entities interacting with more of a real-time power price, whether it's Bitcoin miners or other industrial entities like you suggested, what's what's going to be like the catalyst or how is that going to happen? Like, does government need to come in and, and make it to, to where the market is more clear or does the market just naturally, you know, find, you know, or do, do entities within the market figure out that like, hey, like we need to be using this more real-time power pricing mechanism? How, how do you think about that? Um... It's hard to say. It's, if you look back 20 years, the power markets were generally run uh, again by, it, it wasn't even a power market. It was just centralized utilities, monopoly utilities uh, that defined what the price was. And then they would go out and build the generation mix that could meet the peak demand um, that arose from that fixed price. But you had some large industrial consumers come in during that time and really advocate for uh, wholesale participation on the load side. And those were, you know, well-financed, large industrial consumers who needed low-cost energy if they were going to sustain their business operations in those markets. Um, and so they became a very large uh, sort of like public advocacy group um, in order to reform those markets. And so Bitcoin miners are, are you know, a, a new wave of that. And there's a lot of alignment even between Bitcoin data centers and traditional industrial users that are generally in alignment advocating for the same ongoing deregulation or continued deregulation uh, and market reforms that, that enable more free market participation on the supply and demand side. Um, 
I think too, at some point, uh, these large utilities start to collapse under their own weight. Um, this basically is happening in California. Um, there, there was a period of time where people in the Bitcoin community talked about the, the Bitcoin death spiral um, and thought that you know uh, hash rate would go too high and the revenue per uh, you know per megawatt hour for mining would would be too low and they would just all go bankrupt and that hash rate would go away. I think that was a, an insane concept, but it actually I think came from the energy industry. Um, through a concept that's called the utility debt spiral. This is a very real phenomenon. So what's happening in places like California, um, the utilities in California have a wholesale cost for power, producing power, that might be three or four cents a kilowatt hour, but for layers of bureaucracy bureaucracy and, and mismanaged infrastructure, the retail price to the end consumer ends up being 30 to 40 cents per kilowatt hour. So 10 times that the actual wholesale cost of production. And so in a place like California, um, where it's very sunny, you've actually seen a lot of uh, homeowners and, and other people building out solar and battery storage uh, on their homes and just displacing the need for the utility at all. So, it, and what's interesting about that too, is the people who could afford that solar and storage started with some of the wealthiest, um, biggest energy consumers in those markets. So you're a utility, you have a certain base of customers your best paying, most credit credit worthy customers are are leaving you to just produce their own power. And what you're left with is people who are already late on their energy bills and can, can't continue to afford the high energy prices that you're charging them. And that really does create that death spiral where um, they're going to have to, like, I think these large utilities in a, in a market like that, they're going to have to continue to rely on, um, you know, subsidies from the government until those subsidies run out themselves. Wow, that's fascinating and kind of scary, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, you talked a little bit about or like the idea of, you know, the energy market becoming more free and not being regulated by, you know, various entities like, like local or national governments. Are there issues with that concept in the sense that and I'm by no means an energy expert, but like transmission lines, I'm trying to think of like my apartment right here where the energy is flowing and plugging into this computer. And that's why I'm able to talk to you right now. It's like, is the transmission line, and I may not be the correct term either, but is that like a shared resource that prevents other power producers from like, you know, providing me the power? Or is there like, how, like, are there issues with the market being like rather inefficient? Does that make any sense to you? Um, I can definitely work with that. So the, uh, the transmission lines are are an interesting part of the the entire uh, dynamic of the market. So there are people who are advocates for deregulation of supply and of demand. So meaning the generation uh, can sell power at a market price and the loads can buy power at a market price rather than being beholden to a, a monopoly utility price. Um, a lot of those advocates will also say, but, you know, we need... Uh, we need publicly managed transmission lines because that's the piece that you can't let a free market solve. It would just add cost or whatever. Um, I actually disagree with that. And I think it's a, a fallacy to say that that part of the market also can't be deregulated. Um, it's like saying that, you know, without the government, how would we have roads? Well, the first roads were, were built privately. There still are, you know, private tollways. Um, the government itself does a very, uh, high cost inefficient way of financing the roads. 
Um, maybe for every dollar that you pay in taxes that's supposed to go to roads, like maybe 1% of that actually goes towards, towards um, you know, building the road and the rest is just layers of bureaucracy that it's paying for. Um, the same is true for, for transmission. So even in a market like ERCOT, where it's by far um, one of you know, the most deregulated, robust power market in the world, um, the transmission lines themselves are heavily regulated through monopoly entities, uh, even in that market. And that was sort of a, um, a negotiation that had to be made when they were deregulating the market, uh, sort of a compromise that had to be made to continue to push forward. Let's not say had to be made, but a compromise that was made. Um, and so what you end up with there is if you're a new Bitcoin data center or a new power generation asset, and you're trying to interconnect and sell power in, into the grid, that the, the, the companies or the, the entities that control those monopoly transmission lines um, are by far the companies that add the most time and cost to your interconnection process. Uh, they're effect they are the gatekeepers uh, and they add you know, a year, two years or more to the process of building out new load or new, new uh, generation. And that's just in ERCOT where the market's pretty good and pretty business friendly. If you go to a place like uh, SPP, the Southwest Powerful, which covers um, a lot of the, um, uh, the Great Plains of the United States, like Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, um, part, parts of Wyoming, um, that interconnection process for new generation is more like seven, eight years, which if you're trying to make an investment and deploy capital, and you're not actually sure if you're going to build it, in a, uh, interconnect that generation asset for seven to eight years makes it really hard to make an investment decision. Yeah, that's mind blowing. Is there hope or potential in Texas for like the transmission line monopolies to get deregulated or to enable more competition? Uh, there's always hope. Um, I, I think uh, there's been some some private investments over the last ten years or so where. Um, some larger, uh, you know, private equity investors and, and energy investors um, have, for example, bought out portions of that grid and operate it more as a, a private network. Um, there's uh, the, you know, what we do with Bitcoin mines currently, um, we help it, we help these these Bitcoin data centers interconnect what's called behind the meter of a generation asset. In this frontier moment, Andrew is talking about this concept of behind the meter in relation to the electric grid and Bitcoin miners. A simple analogy to understand behind the meter is like a farmer, the power producer, deciding whether to sell their food directly to a local composting facility, the Bitcoin miner, or to the broader market, the grid. If the market rate is temporarily very low and the composting facility is willing to pay a higher price, the farmer sells directly to the composting facility, bypassing the market. This direct sale is behind the meter because it occurs before the food reaches the broader distribution system, the grid, ensuring the farmer, the power producer, gets a better deal and the composting facility, the Bitcoin miner, gets the food or energy it needs more efficiently. With Bitcoin mining, this scenario becomes particularly interesting. This composting facility in the analogy operates based on the availability of excess food. It's only accepting food when there's an abundance, ensuring waste is minimized. In this model, the composting facility and the Bitcoin miner optimize the use of resources only when there's an abundance. And now back to Andrew. And in doing so, you're creating uh, what they call a private use network. So uh, it's effectively a private 
transmission and distribution line by which two parties can bilaterally sell power uh, without having to worry about what the, the monopoly transmission company says. Um, there's certainly a lot of uh, debate around that and, and pushback, I think, from those transmission providers. Uh, and all of this is ultimately going to depend on, uh, you know, the, the overall political will of the people, the, you know, the push for self-sovereignty, um, who gets elected in these states, who gets appointed to the public utility commissions, who gets elected uh, into the state house as a, a state rep or a state senator, um, and how do they view this market? Like, do they, do they buy into this, um, you know, the fallacy that, you know, the only way to get more reliability on the grid is by centralizing it and putting it in the hands of the government? Or by saying, do we get more reliability and lower costs on the grid by enabling a free market where people can build supply and demand at their own house or closer to their their local neighborhood um, or build their own power grid and operate on whatever currency they want to operate on? Like there, there's two schools of thought there. And there's been a lot of people, especially Bitcoin mining companies, pushing towards the, the self-sovereign approach. Um, but then there's still a lot of very, um, you know, wealthy uh political forces that are pushing for the more more centralized approach still, even even in a market like Texas. Oh, interesting. So I guess that's the future that Bitcoin could help really enable creating more self-sovereign, self-sustaining, like energy abundant local communities rather than like being relying being reliant on massive grid operators or massive utilities. Yeah, that's right. Um more and part of this is just the the shift in wealth, right? If if People of that ethos, that Bitcoin ethos, um, are storing their wealth in Bitcoin and then ultimately start to reinvest that money into their economies. Um, they can do so in a way that, you know, builds out microgrids that connect into local and regional grids. They can build out distributed generation and power storage, um, modular nuclear reactors, Bitcoin mining as a, as a component of that uh, to capture some of the surplus energy. Um, all of these things can happen and, and should happen on a Bitcoin standard. Um it's more of a question of how long does it take to get there and, and what is the world like when that does look like when that does happen. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of like Bitcoin is, you know, a network in of itself of of nodes. Like the power energy industry is kind of a network, I, I guess, of grids and microgrids and you know, energy producers. Yeah. Kind of nodes and edges. Yep. Very similar concept. Very interesting. Um, how do you think about the like mining industry as the block subsidy is going to trend towards zero like do you think that that changes a lot of things or a lot of strategies for a bitcoin miner or is it you know still so far away that most people are still focused on like hey the price of bitcoin is going to go up a lot we just need to be mining as much bitcoin as fast as possible yeah um there's certainly a, a race to get hash rate online and get access to power as soon as possible and capitalize on on whatever the next bull market looks like, whether it's a short-term bull market or a, just an extended uh, rip to the moon where they, there's no looking back. Um, but, and I've actually kind of seen this shift in the last five year, years or so. My, my perspective, when I started to understand uh, Bitcoin and, and the fact that Bitcoin is effectively energy-backed money and that what that means is that Bitcoin is going to be powered by surplus energy, not the you know, marginal energy that that is needed to power the the things that are, um, you know, uh, need absolute reliability, like a hospital, for example, or a security system, something that needs to be on 24 um, seven. I also at the time kind of drew this parallel uh, between Bitcoin ASIC production and where the solar PV industry uh, went in the last 
10, 15 years. So 10, 15 years ago, the solar PV industry, uh, they were producing more and more efficient solar panels and kind of there's different companies competing on saying, how do we make a more efficient solar panel uh, to win this market? But then uh, some smarter investors ultimately said, actually, the, the panels are efficient enough. Let's just produce, the, produce them at high volume and low cost. And so they don't need to be very efficient uh, as long as they're cheap because we have plenty of land to deploy them. So the industry basically consolidated at like 15% efficiency, 15 to 20% efficiency for solar panels, started to produce them at high volume, low cost. I tend to see Bitcoin ASICs uh, also consolidating at their current level of efficiency. So the, the, the main ASIC manufacturers are going to continue producing high volume, low cost ASICs. And what that means is that overall your CapEx um, in a Bitcoin mining data center investment uh, will be lower. And if your CapEx is lower, then you require less uptime, less of a lower load factor, lower utilization rate of the data center to ultimately produce a profitable investment. So I think, you know, through halvings, um, we know the subsidy is going to decrease. We know more competition is going to come into the mining space and drive down the revenue per megawatt hour um, and transaction fees. Nobody knows where they'll go, but let's say they stay relatively steady. Um, the, the revenue per megawatt, per megawatt hour of mining is going to decrease. And what that means is, you know, to get to a low enough power cost, really the only way to do that and mine profitably, I think is going to be by being more flexible and shutting off more often. So, you know, three, four years ago when we were selling sites, um, a lot of the mining companies that we spoke to, probably 80% of them wanted a fixed price for power. Now we see more like 80% of them actually are very comfortable and in, in fact prefer the flexible price. And they went at that time, three, four years ago from operating at like 97, 98% uptime to recoup the investment to where now they'll say, oh no, we'll operate 80, 90% of the time and we're comfortable doing that. Um, and, and they'll still return, uh, make a positive return on investment by doing so. Does that, and this might be the last question before we wrap it up, but does that dynamic make the, like the mining and energy industries like become closer together like the fact that you the the miners actually do become this flexible load so like in 20 years do you i guess do you agree with that one but then in 20 years do you effectively see the mining and ener energy industries becoming one thing like they're not even like really separate they're kind of just the same thing yeah that's a great observation i, th I think it does um you know right now if mining is very profitable the mining company can get away with operating, you know, with the higher uptime and paying a little bit of a premium to the energy company in order to do that. Uh, but as mining becomes less profitable, uh, the need to, um, you know, joint venture and align with these energy companies is even more important. So I think we're going to see it from both angles, but ultimately the way it ends up is that you want your, your, uh, your generation asset and your load asset, your Bitcoin data center as close to each other as possible, probably have some, you know, maybe even a sort of a campus model where you have a very large substation, you've got wind power there, solar power there, battery storage, um, maybe other types of power generation as well, and your Bitcoin data center. Um, and what that, what that point on the grid is going to be trying to figure out what the investors and in, in all those um, and all that infrastructure is going to be trying to figure out is what is the best use for this electron at a given time? So is the best use for that power that's being produced to sell it into the grid or is it to store it in the battery and then sell it later onto the grid or is it to to put that power into the data center uh, and mine bitcoin with it um so we're already starting to see that play play out and and absolutely as as mining margins get tighter 
um, the importance of that of those partnerships increases. Fascinating. Andrew, this was awesome. I enjoyed talking with you. Um, where can people go learn more about you and your company, Satoshi Energy? Thanks, Joe. Um, SatoshiEnergy.com uh, is our website. Um, I'm AC Myers, A-C-M-Y-E-R-S on X. Uh, and yeah, excited. We've got a really exciting year ahead of us. Um, going to be sharing a lot more about what, what we've been working on, some of the big mining companies and energy companies that we've been working with. Uh, and I think it'll be a really exciting year for the industry. I love it. And your essay that you wrote, Permissionless Power Markets, where could people go find that if they want to go read it? Yeah, that is on the Bitcoin Times. Um, Bitcoin Times, they have a sub stack. The, uh, the website there is bitcointimes.io. Sweet. Yeah, everyone should go check that out. But uh, Andrew, thanks. This was, this was awesome. Thanks, Joe.